You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. We come to the end, the very last sermon in the series on Revelation. I had somebody tell me this morning that they're sad to see it go. I won't mention their name. You know, the book of Revelation has really centered on a topic that has become a fascination for me. And you heard me allude to this during my message on Revelation 20, the thousand years. And that topic is the climbing of Mount Everest. And I've done a lot of research on it. I've done a lot of investigation. And what I've found is there's debate. There are people who are climbers and there are adventurers that would say this climbing peak is more strenuous, or this adventure is even more adventurous. But as I've weighed out all of the articles and opinions, I've come to the conclusion that Mount Everest is the climbing adventure. And I think in a way that is what the book of Revelation represents for Christians and teachers of God's word. It takes preparation. It takes tools and resources. It takes continuing and not giving up. And just like summiting Mount Everest, there are points along the way where you look over the precipice and wonder if you're going to survive. And I've, I've received those emails from you. There are other points when you summit Mount Everest where you just stop and you realize how how high in altitude you are, and you look at the views that you have the opportunity to see, and they are unparalleled, and you just are awestruck in that moment by what you have the privilege to see. And I I know some of you have experienced that in Revelation. I've received your emails. But as we arrive at the last sermon in this series, I think it's appropriate to look back It's appropriate to reflect. And what I want to provide for you is an invitation for your grace toward me. This message will be different than most messages you have ever heard from this pulpit. It's not going to be a verse-by-verse study. It's not going to walk through much of Scripture. But it is more of an autobiography for me as I've summited Mount Revelation. And here's my hope. My hope and expectation is that it will be helpful for you, that it will be relatable for you, that it will be encouraging, equipping, stretching, just like our entire series has been. I would not have been able to preach this message until today. I told you at the beginning of the series, I would not tell you where I land on the lenses, the events, the topics of Revelation until we got to the end, and today is the day. But here's the big idea that I hope we all will center on. It's in your notes. God expects, listen to this, and delights in our studying the whole counsel of his word. And Revelation, friends, has been a perfect spurring us on toward that end. Four milestones in reflecting on my autobiography of summiting Mount Everest. The fourth one will be extremely brief. 
The first one is this. It was an opportunity for me to shore up holes. Let me, let me explain what I mean when I say shore up holes. And I want to take you back to 1987. I found myself going into my seventh grade year and being in a family that is a Christian family, going to a solid Christian school, attending a church that preached from the Bible. It wasn't just my parents that was a good foundation for me. It was also my grandparents. My grandparents volunteered at the Grace to You Tape Ministry. That's the media ministry of John MacArthur, the pastor in Southern California, who maybe some of you are familiar with. He's written many books. And so growing up, I had the opportunity to have just about every cassette tape that Grace to You produced and just about every book that MacArthur had written up to that point. But the problem was in 1987 on Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga is that I had a lot of head knowledge, I had a lot of facts, but it had not transformed my heart. And on that mountain, in September of 1987, God took the scales of my blind spiritual eyes off. He replaced my spiritual heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And he radically and graciously saved me. You see, at that moment, I experienced what most of you experienced when you were saved. And it will be up on the screen. 1 John 2.12, little children who are saved, we understand that our sins are forgiven. And that is our perspective of the Father, isn't it? The Father has forgiven my sins, and we celebrate that. That excites us. And then we start a journey, don't we? That journey of studying God's word and discovering there are holes in our understanding of who God is. There are holes in our understanding of how it all fits together. There are holes in our ability to study and understand all 66 books of this Bible. Many, many holes. And we have help along the way. We have pastors. We have mentors. We have conferences. One of my favorites has been the conference that John MacArthur's church hosts called the Shepherd's Conference. And my first experience with the Shepherds Conference was back in 2003. And I remember looking up at the stage and seeing all of those men that I had read their books. I had listened to their messages. And I, I took ravenous notes. And I learned so much. And those attendances of the Shepherds Conference started filling in holes. And, and I was learning so much about God, his character, about his word, about theology. But there was always this one gigantic hole for me, and that was the book of Revelation. Because I, I study the Gospels, and I study the, the stories of Jesus. I study the, the, the book that provides the history of the birth of the church. I studied the letters to those churches and I'm plugging along in the New Testament and I'm understanding it and, and it's very clear. And then I get to this book that talks about locusts coming up from the pit and beasts with horns and heads. And, and, and that became a hole that I just kind of left out there. And in 2007, I attended the Shepherds Conference and I remember John MacArthur making this statement. The, the statement will be up on the screen. The statement is this, every self-respecting Calvinist is a premillennialist. And at that point, I started dissecting that statement, and I thought, okay, up to this point, the holes that I had had in my, my mind about salvation and who does what in salvation and what is free will and what is sovereignty, 
filled those holes to a point where I considered myself a Calvinist. And so when John MacArthur, somebody I respected very highly, told me that every self-respecting Calvinist, that was me, is a premillennialist, then I thought, okay, I'm a premillennialist. I don't even know what that is, but that's who I am. And I continue that journey that we see in Ephesians 3.18. Let me read it for you. Paul says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And don't we learn that the more we get to know our God and his word? And so as we're filling in these holes, I don't know about you, there are plenty of times when I just think there is not enough time in the universe for me to be able to fill in all the holes. There's not enough time for me or ability for me to comprehend the deep things of God, the Deuteronomy 27, 27, secret things that belong to God. I think it's 29, 29. And so what we do in those moments is we borrow from these men that we respect. We borrow from these books that we understand and we adopt those conclusions as our own. That's what we did as elders when it comes to many of the topics in Revelation. In the early days for us as a church, we we looked at the doctrinal statement that we were given by our church planting network and I, I agreed with it and our elders agreed with that or else we wouldn't have planted out of that network and kept the name of that network. But we started wrestling with the fact that some doctrines in Scripture are not codified in our doctrinal statement, things like rapture, things like the timing of the return of Christ. And so we we looked at that, and we we saw in our own theology holes. And so we, we filled those by adopting many of the convictions of John MacArthur's church at Grace Community going out to their doctrinal statement, copying it, and pasting it into ours. Nothing wrong with that. The problem was is that none of us on the elder board at that time had actually wrestled with the holes of revelation deeply and intensely. But at that point, we were good with it. At that point, for me, I could at least tell you what my convictions were on these things. But as I studied the Bible and preached it, I began to question my filling of the holes. You see, I was taught in seminary that if the plain sense makes sense, then seek no other sense. Maybe some of you have heard that. And man, that sounded good. Man, that sounded simple. But there's a problem with that. Who determines what the plain sense is? So as I'm reading Matthew 2, at the end of Matthew 2, Matthew says this was, written to full, this was to fulfill what was written in the prophets that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. But when you actually look at the Old Testament, there's no reference to Jesus or the Messiah being called a Nazarene. In fact, the town of Nazareth was not even relevant in the Old Testament. It actually didn't become a city until the Jews came back from captivity. So the plain sense of Matthew 2 was not necessarily plain. And so I began to wrestle with, are there tools that can help us understand the actual sense of the Bible? And and I started looking for and finding two that have served me well and have served me in the study of the book of Revelation. The first one is this, the conclusions that you draw from a passage must hold up with the rest of the story. 
has been a very valuable tool for me. So that if I'm reading a section of scripture and I'm coming to a conclusion, I've got to compare that conclusion with the rest of the story. And if it doesn't hold up, then I've got to reevaluate my conclusion. The second one is it is crucial that we take into consideration the type of literary device that we are reading. Enter an illustration. A couple weeks ago, I was joining you as a Kansas Cityan in euphoria that we were heading to yet another Super Bowl with our football team. I had a friend send me an article, and I looked at the title, and I got to tell you that the opening two words in the title caused me to just want to shut it and not look at it because it said Taylor Swift. <laughs> Listen, I, I was joining most of you at that point. I had Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey fatigue. I'm not a fan of Taylor Swift. I can tell you one song Taylor Swift has written. Her worldview is in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that was enough for me to say, nope, not going to. Wait a minute. Let me look at the rest of the title. It will be up on the screen. Taylor Swift finally breaks theological silence, comes out in support of amillennialism. <laughs> now you have my attention. Dateline, New York, New York. Taylor Swift finally broke her long-standing unspoken rule of theological silence by coming out in support of amillennialism on her Instagram page Sunday. Interesting. Fans have long clamored for Swift to take a stand on eschatology, and they finally got their wish as the singer posted a lengthy defense of amillennial beliefs. This is what she said. I always have and always will support an eschatological system which best preserves the overarching theme of God's covenants throughout the Bible, she wrote further decrying the systemic church bias toward premillennialism as terrifying, sickening, and prevalent. Understandably, dispensational scholars quickly condemned Swift for her position, calling her just another elite, out-of-touch Hollywood liberal who denies the clear meaning of Scripture. Once again, we see how far outside the norm these wealthy libs are, said Pastor David Jeremiah of Shadow Mountain Community Church in El Cajon, California. They don't understand politics, and they clearly don't understand theology. Several prophecy experts came forward to identify Taylor Swift as one of the several demonic symbols in the book of Revelation. <laughs> don't say amen. <laughs> Making new and end times charts available on their online stores right away. After public outcry, Swift clarified that her position also includes some preterist leanings. Now, I read this out loud to our family, and you can imagine the response of our girls throughout the house. Wait, wait, what? Dad, read that again? Wait, what did that say? Taylor Swift is a Christian? Then I informed them what you'll see on the next screen. This was an article in the Babylon Bee. <laughs> now, if you're not familiar with the Babylon Bee, it is an online Christian satire. Here's what the word satire means as a literary device. It is the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices, particularly in the context of contemporary politics and other topical issues. Now, don't miss the point. The point is the literary device is crucial for our interpreting and understanding what is written. In other words, I take the same hermeneutic and apply it to Psalms, but taking into account that it's poetry. I take my same hermeneutic that I use from Genesis to Revelation and apply it to Leviticus, 
understanding that in some respects it's prescriptive to Israel and in other respects it's narrative, I take the same hermeneutical approach, biblical interpretive approach to the Gospels. But understand that that's narrative. Same thing is true when I come to the book of Revelation. And I must have that in mind as I read the details of the article so that I understand what the original author intended. I listened to a message by John MacArthur called A Jet Tour Through Revelation. I actually recommend it highly. In a little over an hour, he unpacks Revelation 1 through 22 with clarity, with consistency, with the historical context, with grammar. He's humorous about it. And as he's unpacking the 144,000 being literal Jews from the tribes of Israel and explaining how God can allow us to be able to find the records of these Jews and how these locusts coming out of the bottomless pit are demons. And we'll see them all throughout the, the earth and how the two witnesses are individuals and how CNN is going to have updates every night on them. It just made sense. If you're reading Revelation in a different way than the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so as I wrestled with all of this, I found the book of Revelation to be an opportunity for me to fill in the hole for me of what the book means, how to interpret it, and what it means for our lives. But it moves me to number two, second milestone of my autobiography of summiting Revelation is, it's important though, beloved, listen to this, that we select the hills appropriately. Select the hills appropriately because as I've journeyed, not just in Revelation, but in filling the holes, maybe you like me have come across people who are very, very, very passionate about a particular area of theology. Maybe you've come across an author that as you read even the opening pages, you realize they will forget more than I'll ever know. And and the temptation for us is really polarizing, isn't it? On, On one side of the coin, we are drawn to those individuals. We hook our carriage up to them of our belief system, and we essentially follow them wherever we go. That, that's one side of the polarity. The, the other side of the polarity is we can be tempted to re- be repelled by them. And in so doing, just throw up our hands and just say, God's got this. I'm pan-millennial. It'll all pan out in the end. And miss the important opportunity that God gives us from every page of his word. See, here's the problem. Both of those polarizing extremes are not what God intends from his word. Listen to the way that God markets his word, if I can be so bold to use that phrase. Listen to Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is true. Wow. You mean including Leviticus? Including Revelation? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Everyone? You mean we shouldn't unhook the Old, New Testament from the Old Testament? How about Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus responds to Satan with a passage from Deuteronomy. Man should not live by physical bread alone. Yes, we need physical bread daily. Gluten-free for us but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, including Deuteronomy. 
including Hosea, including Revelation. God has gifted us with this book that every word is true. God has gifted us with this book that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. God has gifted us with this book that spiritually is just as if not more important than daily physical nutrition. All of it. So we've got to fill the holes, but as we're filling the holes, we've got to determine what do we do with the filling of those holes. We've got to find the right hills to die on. Let me encourage you, beloved, that every doctrine of Scripture, every topic of Scripture requires us as Christians to have a conviction. Not only if you're in a certain, like, elite Christian category, every Christian And that the gift that we have is we get to wrestle, we get to stretch our muscles, we get to work out for the rest of our lives. But as we land on our convictions, they they really fall into different categories. And and let me give you two resources that I hope will be helpful for you. One of them is a book. The QR code will take you to Amazon where you can purchase it. The other one is a a free article. The, The first one is Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland. And what he unpacks in several hundred pages is summarized very quickly by Al Mohler in his article, A Call for Theological Triage and Christian Maturity. I'm going to save you some time and I'm going to summarize them. Every Christian doctrine essentially falls into three levels, all of them being that they're important. The first level doctrines are those that are most central or essential for Christianity. And as you look at what scripture says about these topics, when you look at how church history and church fathers responded to these topics, you can start to assemble a short list of those doctrines that fit in the first level. Things like the Trinity, things like the authority of scripture, things like justification by faith. We all need to agree with these. The scripture is clear enough on these that we can all arrive on a universally agreed upon position that allows us to stay within the realm of Christian orthodoxy. But then there are second level doctrines. These are doctrines that impact church membership or ministry partnerships. These would be topics like baptism or women serving as pastors and elders. I've got plenty of friends that believe that the Bible teaches that Infant baptism is the mode of baptism that the New Testament prescribes. That's not where we land. We land after wrestling with the New Testament that baptism by immersion after you have been saved is what the New Testament prescribes. Now, my brothers who land on infant baptism, I am in agreement with them on first level. I can call them brothers in Christ, but we wouldn't be members of each other's churches. And then there's third level doctrines. Again, all of us should have convictions on them. We should be able to defend them from Scripture, not by pastors or authors. And one of those that is most obvious is eschatology, the end times and the timing of it and the details of it. We all should land, and hopefully the study of Revelation has helped you with that, But third level, we hold loosely. Third level doesn't necessarily impact our ability to partner with other ministries or be members at one another's churches. It certainly does not impact our Christian orthodoxy or whether or not we're saved. This has served me well. It served our elders well. 
And I hope it serves us well as we head into the point that you've been waiting for. And that is summarizing hover points. Summarizing hover points. The hover points meaning these are lenses or event understandings or topics that are associated with revelation. But looking at them alone. And, And here's what I mean by that. Looking at them, not necessarily developing them from context. That's what the last 32 Sundays have been. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break these hover points into three categories. And listen, this is where my cards are out on the table. This is where I'm not being mysterious. I'm going to tell you where I land on these positions. And the three categories are, first of all, the lenses through which we read Revelation. The second category are how do we view the events in Revelation. And the third one are seven specific topics associated with Revelation and where I land on them and why. So the lenses of Revelation. There are three essential, essentially three lenses. But before I unpack them, I need to state this clearly. They all believe in one consistent truth. Listen to this. That Christ will return bodily and literally. I believe that. And you may say, well, wait, you just said literally. Let me explain why. Because it holds up with the rest of the story and the symbolic details of the book of Revelation are teaching this theological truth. And when I combine all of that, I can go to a passage like Acts 1.10 and allow it to assist me that when the disciples were looking up at Jesus ascending, what did the angel say to them? Why are you staring up into heaven, not moving, not acting? Why? Because the same Jesus will come in the same manner that he went, bodily and physically. All three of these positions, all three of these lenses agree with this. But here's what happens. They disagree with the when of his return and what happens after. The first one is this, post-millennialism. And all three of these have the word millennialism because their view on Revelation 20 influences their position of the thousand years. Post-millennialism is summarized on the screen behind me. But what it is, is it... It's the belief that there will be an increasing effectiveness of the gospel, and then Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. So, in other words, as you and I are evangelizing, as we are making disciples, we're going to become more and more effective at a global level so that finally all of the earth is saved. And when that happens, then God says, okay, it's time, set up your kingdom, Jesus. Now, this is not a false summary because this is actually written by a post-millennialist. Now, there might be some of you out there that are post-millennial or that are watching online and say, well, wait, there's way more to it than that. And I acknowledge that for for the sake of this sermon and the scope, I thought it was appropriate to use what a post-millennialist says and then summarize it, and and I don't land there. Then there's premillennialism. This is the view that the present age in which we find ourselves will end with the rapture of the church. Then there will be seven literal years of tribulation. Then Christ will come for a second time. He will bind Satan in the abyss and for a thousand years here on earth literally set up a kingdom. 
And Satan will be bound for those thousand years. And then at the end of those thousand years, Satan will be literally loosed and he will wreak havoc on that millennial kingdom and assemble the armies that are left in the world against Christ. That's the battle of Armageddon. Christ will defeat them and then will set up his eternal kingdom. That is the position I used to hold. That is the position that John MacArthur's message, a jet tour to Revelation, will solidify if that's your presupposition. The problem for me is that as I look at how John is referencing the Old Testament and look at how those prophets are developing their prophecies, I I can't get there. Which brings me to the third lens through which people look at the book of Revelation, and that's awe millennialism, awe being no or not, which I I don't like that. I I think a better way to describe it is inaugurated millennialism because I do believe there's a millennium, but I'll explain to you what it is here in just a moment. And that is the position that the Old Testament promises are a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of Christ. That Israel, ethnic Israel, all of the laws, all of the festivals, they had a role to play of foreshadowing. And once Christ came, then the needs for those billboards, the need for those shadows no longer exist. The role that they played as a foreshadowing of the promise of fulfillment of Christ is no longer needed. That's why I don't think the church has replaced Israel. I think Christ is the true Israel. That's a difference. The thousand years, I believe, are symbolic to teach a literal truth, and that is the period from the resurrection of Christ until the final judgment and the setting up of the new kingdom is what John describes as the thousand years of Revelation 20. For me, the amillennial, inaugurated millennium position fills in the most holes and holds up with the story best, and so that's where I land. Which brings me to the second category, which is the hover of the events. What are the events of the book of Revelation? When there are four horsemen and and four colors and there are uh, water turning into blood and there are mountains that are falling to the sea and a third of the stars will fall and a third of humans die. What are those events describing? And they fall into three categories again. The first one is the preterist understanding. That is that the events detail literal historical events that have already taken place. Most believe that has taken place in 70 AD in the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. This is the preterist understanding. The second one is the futurist. The events detail literal future events that will take place in the final seven years of history. This is the position I used to hold. And again, if you're just looking at Revelation in a consistent pattern that you've been looking at with the more literal details of Jesus' life, the literal details of the churches, the literal details of the epistles, and you're taking that same approach to Revelation, then this is clear. This makes way more sense. The problem is that's not the type of literature that we're studying from. It's apocalyptic prophetic. The problem is there's no mention of a literal seven years of tribulation in the book of Revelation. Most people draw that conclusion from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. This is the 70 weeks of Daniel. 
where Daniel is told that the final week, the 70th week, will be seven years. And so they take that and then they project it on the details of Revelation. But as I've been studying Revelation and seeing how John is actually referencing Daniel, developing the whole point of Daniel, I don't think that holds up. And so for me, the third view of the details of the events of Revelation is where I land. That's the recapitulation or a shorter, easier word to understand, a replay. That's that the details of the events of this book are replays of God's partial judgment on earth and the effects of sin from Christ's resurrection to the final global judgment. That just makes sense to me when I understand what John is doing, and that is he's standing in the same category as Old Testament prophets. Let me explain it to you like this. When you read Old Testament prophecy and you see the details that the prophets use, they were intentional. They were intentional for the original audience. Let me, let me give you an example. I've struggled with this as I've read through the Bible over the years. Zechariah chapter 14 Verse 16 specifically, but 16 through 20, it says, Then everyone who survives, and the chapter up to this point seems to be describing the end. Seems to be describing the details that John seems to be describing. And it says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. The rest of this passage and others, in fact, let me give you a few. Isaiah 19, where it says that in the future, in the last days, Egypt will offer sacrifices to Yahweh. Jeremiah 17, Jerusalem will be inhabited forever, bringing burnt offerings forever to Jerusalem. Jeremiah 33, 18, the new covenant Levitical priests will make sacrifices forever. This was a hole for me. Because as I study the New Testament, there is a once-for-all sacrifice, and who was that? It's Christ. So why would there be a future event after Christ where there will be burnt sacrifices, where there will be more sacrifices, where people will come back to a temple literal in literal Jerusalem? That just doesn't make sense with the New Testament until I understood what prophets are doing. They're using detail that the original audience would have been able to understand to get to the theological truth that is being taught. For a Jew in Zechariah's day, there is no grid that they would have had to be able to understand authentic worship apart from sacrifices in Jerusalem at the temple. That's what it would have been. So there would have been nothing that Zechariah could provide for them to say, oh no, that in the future will be authentic worship. When I understand that, now I can understand that what John is not doing here is struggling to describe helicopters. Then I can understand that John is not struggling to explain the technology of implanting chips in a wrist or in a forehead, and he just can't figure it out, so he just says it's a mark of a beast. What John is doing is he's using details that the original audience would have been able to understand so that they would have been able to grasp the theological truth. And the original audience would have only had up to the end of the Old Testament and some letters and gospels from the New Testament. So that's why he spends so much time in the Old Testament. So I land in the recapitulation replay 
understanding of the events of the book of Revelation, which brings me to the hover topics. I'm going to give you seven of them. I just want to water the ground right now to know, to tell you that there were some gasps in first service. Bear with me on this. I'm telling you where I land. I'll give you a brief window into why, and then we can have future conversations. But remember that I've set this up. These are third-level topics. Let's land in a way that defends It's defended from all of the story that allows for the apocalyptic prophetic literature and then enjoy coffees and emails back and forth. The first one, rapture. I don't believe there will be a rapture of the church. When you look at the Bible, the Bible emphasizes God bringing us through suffering, not removing his people from it. When you look at the book of Revelation, you can see that the the theme is conquer and endure. Not conquer and endure, but listen, some of y'all are not going to have to experience it. I shared this with somebody as I was developing this, and she said, "Uh, okay, it makes sense biblically, but I don't like it. Can I tell you this? Neither do I. I would love to be heading toward the finish line of a rapture. Maybe it'll be today, and then I don't have to experience all of the suffering, but that's not what God does by way of a pattern in the story. And so for me, as I look at the entire story, as I look at the prophetic apocalyptic literature, as I look at there's no clear evidence from Revelation, there's a few few verses that people will pull up, but as I studied them and I looked at them in the context, they don't talk about a rapture. Rapture is not talked about in the book of Revelation. But stay tuned, because I am preaching through 1 Thessalonians, right? In chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 is one of the passages that people who believe in a rapture will go to, so... Stay tuned, but where I am now, I don't believe the rapture is a biblical topic. Number two, antichrist. I don't believe this is an individual person. I believe this is the world system. And I know many have have spent a lot of ink and have sold a lot of books trying to show how the 666 number is Hitler or Putin. or and, And I'm not making fun of that. I'm just saying I can't get there. Because as I look at the passages in Revelation that seem to be talking about Antichrist, the vocabulary going back to Daniel, the vocabulary going back to passages like Ephesians 2, seems to be describing more the world system than it does individuals. And so that's where I'm landing. First Thessalonians will also talk about that. Number three, the mark of the beast. I don't believe this is a literal mark. I don't believe it's a tattoo. I don't believe it's a chip. I think what John is doing is using Old Testament imagery to help his original audience understand the theological truth that he's communicating, and that is the people of the world will show their allegiance by the patterns of their lives, and the same thing is true with kingdom citizens. And in the Old Testament, the mark on the forehead, the mark on the wrist was your identity of citizenship. And so I think John is drawing that imagery symbolically to teach theological truth. We will know each other by the patterns of our lives. Number four, the witnesses of Revelation 11. I used to think it was two individuals. I used to agree with MacArthur. And by the way, I love MacArthur. I was listening to one of his Q&As last night, Sally and I did, as we were going to sleep. And I was like, this is so good. You know, this was interesting. I'll just say this as a side note. Somebody asked him, where is Jesus in the Old Testament? And he said, everywhere. And I'm like, Yes! 
He said, Genesis 3.15, he said, that's why Jesus in, Leviticus, in, in Luke 24 pointed back to the Old Testament to say that it's all pointing to him. And I'm like, yes, brother. And that was just a couple weeks ago. Then he started talking about Israel. I'm like, no, no, don't agree with that. But that's in that third level category. The witnesses, I think, are the entire church. And the reason for that is because of the imagery that John uses. He references the olive, the olive, uh, the olive stands, the lampstands and the olive trees. That's right. I didn't get my coffee in between services. And there in, in Zechariah 4, he's talking about the collective people of God. And so I think John in Revelation 11 is talking about the collective people of God, not two individuals. Number five. The tribulation, I don't think it's intended to communicate a literal seven years. I think it's intended to show these glimpses of the replay of God's judgment on pockets of humanity, of the effects of sin on creation. And that's why we have the Holocaust. That's why we have tsunamis. That's why we have what we have today. It's going over and over again. Now, I do believe that at the end, the world will unify against the church. And what will be the period of time with that? I don't think Revelation tells us, but it does provide contrast, doesn't it? Because a thousand years are a lot longer than three and a half days. 1260 days are a lot longer than three and a half days. Go back to Revelation 11 and see how he uses numbers there. And it's the three and a half days that the witnesses, the church, appears to be dead. It's a very short time. And I think what John is doing with his symbolism is he's helping us as an audience to understand the contrast between this extended period of time of pocket glimpses of judgment and the time when it's all going to go to hell in a handbasket. Number six, the thousand years. I don't believe this is a literal thousand years. I think it's the period from the resurrection until the eternal kingdom. Again, apocalyptic literature. How do they use numbers? What is John teaching as a theological contrast? Isn't it interesting that there's no other place in the entire Bible where a thousand year reign is alluded to? You take all of that together, and I think this is symbolically teaching theological truth. And that is there's a period of time that God is controlling where bad things are going to happen over and over and over again. And it is going to come to an end. And that end is going to be a very, very brief time relative to the time between the resurrection and when that happens. And I think that is intended to encourage us to conquer and endure, which brings me to number seven. I didn't plan for that. But I do think it's interesting that I came up with seven in Revelation. The New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem describes the entire new heavens and the new earth, not a literal city in literal new Israel, in literal Jerusalem with a literal gate around it. I've heard that explanation. I've heard that that's going to be the place where Jews who are saved get to be in and all of us Gentiles who are saved are on the outside. Whether that's the millennial kingdom or whether that's the eternal kingdom and the people who hold that position, I don't think that's consistent with the New Testament. Because when Jesus comes, what happens to all of the ethnic distinctions? What happens to all the horizontal distinctions? They're gone in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. So why would it change in a millennial kingdom or an eternal kingdom? I don't think that's consistent. 
And so I think there's symbolic detail that John is providing, listen to this though, of a literal city. Bear with me on this. Because I think the literal city is the whole thing. And John is giving us, like Old Testament prophets, details that we can wrap our brains around. We can understand a wall. We can understand streets of gold. We can understand uh, pearly gates. We can understand those things, but that isn't the literal detail that he's providing for us to literally apply that knowledge. He's actually doing for us what Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 2 is needed. Listen to this. It will be up on the screen. When it comes to the new Jerusalem... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We wouldn't get it. If John tried to, at the end of 21 and 22, explain to us the actual details of heaven, you'd see a lot of people reading and all of a sudden, he gives us what we can wrap our brains around so that we understand the theological truth he's communicating. And that is one day, Without distinction, those who by the patterns of their lives and their marks have revealed that they are people of faith, trusting in the completed work of Jesus Christ, will enjoy his presence as was originally designed. And it will expand what the greatest human mind could ever imagine infinitely. Come, Lord Jesus. Which brings me to number four. How do we sail from here? (laughs) Well, I hope the journey for you has filled in some holes. I hope it's allowed you to select the hills of these details and conclusions and place them on the right one. I hope you now can see at least where I land. I'm not being mysterious. I've told you and why. But here's what I hope it's done for you. I hope it's stretched you. I hope your muscles of biblical interpretation and theology are stronger. I hope you've been moved to take a section of scripture that you might have held at arm's length and said, no, 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 every word of God is true. It's all profitable. It's my living bread, all of it. I hope you, like me, and like every intended audience of the book of Revelation, can celebrate that Christ is coming, that he's control and that he is center to the story and our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this amazing summit. Uh, It's been hard. It's taken work. It's been frustrating for some, encouraging for others. But I pray that we would walk away from this, having our theological muscles strengthened, that holes have been filled We would recognize where the conclusions that we land on with so many of these topics fit in the hills to die on. I pray that you would give us the grace to engage with one another on the lenses, events, and topics, being able to defend where we land with the entire story, being able to defend where we land, understanding the literature that Revelation provides, and then extending great charity toward one another being settled in our conviction that Christ is coming, that he is in control, and that he is the center of the story and prayerfully our universe. Because when that happens, we will conquer and endure no matter what we experience. We will reflect him more brilliantly, and we will delight 
to share him by the way that we live and the words that we say until that glorious day when we are either taken home or Christ returns. Come, Lord Jesus. For his glory, I pray.